Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. You are listening to part two of our hasem murder coverage, and I apologize in advance if you hear scratching or whining. It's because I am dog-sitting this weekend, and the dog will not chill, so he is in the laundry room right now. He's secluded from my other dogs because Daisy will not stop barking, so (laughs) it's a lot. The dog's on crack. Yeah, he's a two-year-old dog who's not neutered, so he's just all over the place constantly wanting to play and he's also a boxer and that automatically skyrockets the energy (laughs) yes that too so if you hear any whining or scratching that's what that is please try to ignore it i promise i'm not hoarding anybody in my basement or is she (laughs) you never know i have made some questionable statements on this podcast so i'm gonna let brie introduce our interviewee. Yes, we're going to talk a little bit about the trial, and then I will talk about our interviewee. But I will tell you, his name is Dr. Tom McClintock. He is a forensic analysis person. I don't remember his exact title, but he mentions it in the interview. He does a whole lot of stuff for a whole lot of cases. So he worked on part of this case, and he is actually a family friend of ours. We have known him for, God, like 15 years. I don't know. We met him back in Maryland, so it's been at least 10 years since we've lived here. We've known him for a very long time, and so he was gracious enough to give me an interview for our podcast, and so we'll play that a little bit later in the episode, but we're going to go ahead and get started. We're starting at the trials. In our last episode, we ended with Jens being extradited from the UK to the US to stand trial for the murders of Derek and Nancy Haysom. So the trial in 1990 was actually the first trial in Virginia to be nationally televised. So it was a kind of a big deal. (laughs) So the trial began on June 1st in 1990 and it lasted three weeks. But before the trial officially began, Jens's defense tried to argue for a couple of different reasons why the case shouldn't be happening, essentially. So first, they argued against having the cameras in the courtroom because they believed that it could lead to an unfair trial. I mean, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Wait, don't they, some cases allow cameras, but some don't, like celebrity cases, right? I think it depends on the type of case. Nowadays, I think there's a little bit less of that voyeuristic mindset, like, oh, I have to be in the room to see what's happening. Yeah. So... I don't know. But Judge William W. Sweeney overruled that motion, so obviously they allowed the cameras. So the defense also argued for a change of venue just because there was so much publicity surrounding this case in Bedford County. That's yeah. Fair. That one I could understand. And so rather than actually changing the physical venue, what they did was they brought in jurors from a different county, claiming that there wouldn't be as much publicity back then in that specific county, which I mean maybe, but at the same time What's it called? Did he make come where they couldn't get on the internet and stuff? Well, I don't think the internet actually existed at this point. I think it came a couple years later in the 90s, but I don't actually know that for sure. Sequester, that's the name. Did they? Did he sequester the jurors? That I don't know. I did not see any information about that. Interesting. And then finally, the defense also filed a motion to have Judge Sweeney recuse himself from the case. The reason being that Sweeney and Nancy Hasem's brother had gone to school together at the Virginia Military Institute and he had actually attended a party in honor of Nancy a couple of years before the murders. Okay, that's that's fair. Well, there's another thing, which he definitely should have recused himself after this, but he had given an interview in a local magazine where he was quoted as saying, quote, as far as the acts themselves, I don't think she, 
referring to Elizabeth Hasem, planned all that out. It was like, double dare you. I think she was shocked he took the dare. And then Sweeney decided not to recuse himself because he said no conflict of interest existed. Which okay, bullcrap. I feel like if a judge is given the decision to recuse himself or not... He automatically should. Yeah, I mean... That and just the fact that I think it should be like an objective third party who determines that, not the judge themselves, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't really make sense because who's going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to remove myself from the biggest case in Virginia history at that oh, time. We had a Law and Order episode where a judge wouldn't recuse himself. <laughs> Law and Order's done everything. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> okay. So one thing that I think I mentioned in the previous episode was that Jens and Elizabeth had created this alibi when they went up to DC where they said that Jens had bought movie tickets or whatever, or somebody had bought movie tickets to make it seem like they were both up there. And they'd also ordered room service and a couple other things to make it seem like they were both there while one of them drove to... Bedford and killed her parents. The only difference between the stories that were being told was that Elizabeth claimed that she was the one who stayed and bought the tickets and that Jens drove to Bedford and killed her parents, which is the story she told on the stand, whereas Jens says that he was the one who stayed and Elizabeth drove back. Oh my god, are they gonna like start going against each other? Yeah, basically. I love when that happens because you know the story's piping hot. The tea <laughs> is there and it's being spilled. Okay, honey? Yeah, and the thing about that too I think it was because Elizabeth broke up with him and took that deal Ooh, yeah. that that kind of started it all. Yeah. During the trial, people said that Jens didn't really come off very well. I guess from an outsider's perspective, he was smirky. He was kind of arrogant. They said he looked clammy because the AC was broken, which that's not his fault. <laughs> I mean, you can't blame the man for being hot. <laughs> yeah, especially in the last few days, especially here in Virginia, it has been sweltering. So I can only imagine what it's like without Ooh, AC. True. This is the beginning of June when this is taking place. So <laughs> no thanks. So main evidence against him during the trial was the typo blood that was found at the crime scene. Because remember, they couldn't identify specific people with the forensic technology that they had back then. His recanted confession because he had confessed initially to murdering them. And then after Elizabeth took the deal, he was like, I didn't, I was trying to protect her. He's like, psych. Yeah, psych. And then this one is a stupid piece of evidence, but I think I mentioned in the last episode that there were sock prints and footprints in the blood. Mm -hmm. They took one of the imprints of the sock prints and they allegedly matched it up with his footprint that they took when they interviewed him because they took DNA, they took footprints and fingerprints. That was the main evidence that was used against him. They made a big show of blowing up the picture of the sock print in the blood compared. I feel like, okay, so just to play devil's advocate, you can't really, you know how many people probably have the same size foot <laughs> and their foot looks the same in a sock? Yeah, exactly. And I don't know, I feel similarly about bite impressions because like your teeth shift constantly so it's a little bit better than a footprint but it's like if that's the only evidence you have then that's not i don't think enough to convict somebody of first degree murder but anyway so he claims that elizabeth actually admitted to killing her parents but that the drugs made her do it but of course, obviously, Elizabeth is going to deny the entire account of events because she doesn't want to seem like she's guilty. Is there even a drug that can make you kill somebody without you remembering it? <laughs> I think 
If you did enough hallucinogens, maybe. Probably like acid. Yeah, something like that. I would imagine maybe you have this idea of what happened while you were tripping, but you don't necessarily... It's not what actually happened in reality. So that would be my guess is if it had been a hallucinogen. And I think one of the drugs that she abused was LSD. So, I mean, it's very possible. Oh, yeah, that's true. It was LSD and heroin, right? Yep, that's right. The questions with regards to Jens's innocence, there were misremembered facts about the case. During his statements, he couldn't actually identify what Mrs. Hasem was wearing on the day of the murder. I feel like that's maybe eh, because it's like I probably wouldn't be able to tell you what I was wearing on the day that some big event happened. But I can't tell you what I was wearing yesterday. Yeah. Actually, I could tell you. I was cute. <laughs> but <laughs> and then another thing was that he misremembered the position that Derek Hasem's body was laying. OK, I feel like because that's similar to a case that I'm researching mm-hmm. for a later episode. But I feel like if you kill somebody, the position of how the body fell once you took their life is something that you're going to remember for like ever. Especially if it's something that you're not frequently doing. Serial killers, I could completely understand if that's something that they might not remember because they're just like, oh, it's just another number. But if you have never killed anybody before and this is your first time murdering somebody, you would remember something as specific as that. that's a significant detail. Yeah. It's not like, oh, he was wearing a black shoe yeah. on his left foot when I killed him. No, like you're, we're talking about how the body fell yes. and the way it was laying. Exactly. And then there were unidentified fingerprints and a smaller footprint that was smaller than Jens's foot that was left at the crime scene that nobody could really account for. And then Chuck Reed, who was the detective who had actually retired in the middle of the case, he Mm -hmm. said in the article I was reading in The New Yorker that, quote, technically we had no physical evidence that could have tried it. If Jens Suring hadn't admitted to it, I don't know that we could have convicted him. So really, the main reason why they pushed for it was because of the fact that he had that confession, even though he recanted it later. Basically, that just makes people think that he's a liar. They can't trust anything he says. (laughs) And I mean, that's fair. (laughs) So Elizabeth's time on the stand in this trial, Elizabeth said that Jens was angry with her parents for not providing Elizabeth with sufficient funds because they were supposedly wealthy. And then another thing that she said later on, which I'll mention at another point, I mentioned the sexual abuse allegations last episode and how Elizabeth denied that on the stand. That her mother was sexually abusing her, right? Yeah, that she had taken naked photographs of her and things like that. And she had denied that on the stand ultimately. But now in an article a couple of years ago, she admitted that it had actually been happening. That it hadn't been happening or it was happening? That it was happening, but that she, I guess, was in denial about it back then. I'll read a specific quote from this article because it was really the only thing I could find from Elizabeth within recent years because she was pretty quiet after she was convicted. She didn't really talk to the media, whereas Jens was talking to anybody who would listen, it seemed like. Did they ever find like any evidence, like any of the photographs? I didn't see anything that mentioned that. So that's a good question because i imagine that if they found those then that would make it very obvious that something was was happening yeah yeah so ultimately the only responsibility she claimed for what happened on that day was that she blamed herself for letting jens know how unhappy she was because that led to him going and killing her parents She said she never wanted them to be murdered, but all of your letters suggest otherwise. (laughs) Just 
I don't know. Like I said last episode, maybe it was teen angst, but that's a lot of really... That's a lot of angst. That's a lot of And I know because I was an angsty teen. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, I think a lot of people have been through phases where they're like, oh, I hate my parents. But it's like, I don't think everybody goes through a phase where they want their parents dead. I could understand it with the mom if there was sexual abuse involved. I can't say one way or another. Elizabeth claims it was, so I'm more likely inclined to believe that it was. But I could understand it in that sense. So, like I mentioned, part of their alibi involved buying movie tickets. So, Elizabeth claimed to be the one who went to see the movies that they mentioned in the alibis, but later she changed the story a little bit. She said that she bought the tickets, but she hadn't actually gone into the theater. And then another thing was that Jens's recollection of the actual times of the movies was more accurate than Elizabeth's was. So, that kind of insinuates that Elizabeth was the one lying. But at the same time, it's also entirely possible that's something that Yen's memorized. That's fair. We mentioned the last episode, they were both very, very smart individuals. They had these Jefferson and Eccles scholars titles. So it's like, they're both very smart. You would think that, I don't know, they would have memorized something like that, especially if it was relevant to an alibi. Yeah. So who knows? She claims that Yen's drove covered head to toe in blood back in the rental car and picked her up from the last movie, which was the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is a fantastic movie. Very fun. I've never seen it. I've only seen it once, but the way I saw it, it's like an immersive experience in the theater where everybody is singing along and all that. So it was, it was a very fun experience. <laughs> However, I do want to point out that the drive from Bedford to DC, it's about a three and a half hour drive on a good day. Yeah. If anybody has driven in the DC area, they know that there's just traffic all the time. So... I can't imagine somebody driving that far covered head to toe in blood and not... Yeah, That doesn't seem comfortable to me, (laughs) personally. Mm -mm. And then in the trial, it was revealed that in May of 1985, Elizabeth and her older siblings had decided to get together to clean the house because they were going to sell it. Obviously, this is after they collected stuff. weird. (laughs) Yeah. And so Annie Massey, who is the neighbor, she apparently saw Elizabeth compare her footprint to the bloody sock print on the floor at the crime scene which that's weird. And then one of her older brothers, Howard Hasem, believes that he heard Elizabeth making joking comments about finding her father's brains. Okay, listen. So I've never had somebody die, but I'm also (laughs) the type to make fun of trauma. Yes. So I can't really get mad at her. I mean, don't get mad at me, people. (laughs) But about making fun of finding her father's brains because I have like a really morbid dark sense of humor but that's how I deal with trauma yeah so and that I mean it's not funny I completely get what you're saying because humor is a coping mechanism I probably would do the same so however I feel like if you see footage of Elizabeth, she's very stoic almost. So it seems out of character for her to do it this way, but I also don't have any knowledge of what she was like outside of that trial setting. So I can't specifically say if that's something that's normal for her personality or not. Listen, if I ever had to be interviewed by the police and they start asking questions, I'm going to make jokes and I'm probably going to go to jail. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll we'll just keep that in mind if something happens. I'm going to be like, can you please play episode seven? (laughs) 
Uh, minute 24. <laughs> yes. We'll make sure that your defense team gets that in evidence. So thank you so much. Then also her brother believes she had something to do with it. So I feel like the fact that the brother thinks that she had yeah. something to do with it, that kind of speaks volumes, I guess, because yes, it's an older brother. So I don't know how much they actually like lived together beforehand, because I think he was an adult by the time that she was born. But I imagine they spent at least holidays together, you know? Yeah, that's fair. And then also one thing that I found was kind of ick. On the stand, Elizabeth claims that on the night of her parents' funeral that she awoke to Yen's making love to her. So I don't know if that's actually true. Where was the consent, sir? Yeah. In the documentary, she was making it out to seem like, because they had footage from the trial, she was making it out to seem like Jens had been incompetent up to that point. Like he wasn't able to get it up, essentially, (laughs) until that night. And then suddenly he was... Yeah. Anyway. It's a Ted Bundy situation. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. I I feel like I'm less inclined to believe Elizabeth in this situation because I know that she took this deal to get out of a death penalty sentence. So I yeah. I feel like she would say whatever was necessary to get Jens in trouble. Because like we mentioned in last episode, the way that letter that she wrote or whatever confessing her love for him where she was talking about how she liked to make men fall in love with her and then like essentially destroy them. That seems to be like what is happening here. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just me. Anyway, Jens was sentenced on June 21st, 1990 to two concurrent life sentences. And and I actually was just reading this before we started recording, but apparently on the night of sentencing, he tried to kill himself by tying a plastic bag over his head with a shoelace, but he panicked and he broke the bag. So Stop. it's not funny. It's, it's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny. It's, no, it's not. Some of the aftermath of the case, Jens has published multiple books since his conviction. I haven't read any of them because I don't have time. <laughs> well, I haven't had time in the last couple of weeks, but I might read one or two of them. Problem is, is like, I don't necessarily want to give him money. Wait, what was Elizabeth's convicted? Uh, uh, well, she pled guilty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With that deal. 90 years, right? Yes. So that's essentially the same two concurrent life sentences. <laughs> Apparently in... One of the interviews that I was reading, he said, quote, if I had committed the murders, I would have committed them the way I committed the check fraud with care and planning. Basically, he was saying that the Hasten murder appeared risky, messy and personal. That was reminiscent of I know you don't know a whole lot about the OJ case, but after the fact, he ghost wrote a book or something like that. But that was like, if I did it, (laughs) how the murders would have happened or whatever. That seemed very reminiscent of that. I just. (laughs) okay, sir. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you were found not guilty, sir. (laughs) Yes. Just admit it. Since then, Jens's lawyer has actually had his law license revoked, the one that he had (sighs) in that trial. And before he had had it revoked, he had had it suspended twice. What? For what? Stop. That's juicy. It says in the 90s, his counsel, Richard Neaton, had his law license suspended twice. One of those times was, it says at Soaring's behest, so I assume that he complained about something, for infractions ranging from forgery to incompetence. Oh, okay. (laughs) And then in 2001, the license was revoked, but it doesn't say why. Part of that was worked into his appeals process or something like that later. Um, But before I get to that, I mentioned before that Jens had 
claimed that Elizabeth was the one who did it while on the stand. He wrote in his 2012 memoir, which is titled Not Guilty! Exclamation point, or <laughs> Nicht Schuldig, which is the German way how to say it. And I probably butchered that, but it's fine. German listeners, please comment. Tell us how to pronounce this. Yes, please. You would think I would have asked my mother before I started, but it's fine. That Elizabeth was in debt to a drug dealer. In the documentary, they named him, like they said his name was Jim Farmer, but that was, I guess, not really necessarily confirmed, quote unquote. Yeah, because snitches get stitches. <laughs> But basically, he said that Elizabeth was in debt to this drug dealer. And so the reason for their trip up to D.C. was because she needed to pick up a drug shipment for him and bring it back to Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And Jim allegedly threatened to tell Elizabeth's parents about her using. And that's why Jens decided to be her alibi. I don't know if that's actually true or not, because he never mentioned that before the trial. And you would think that would be kind of important information. Yeah, that's fair. His whole like appeals process, he had legal help to file a habeas corpus petition, which is essentially claiming that he's being unlawfully imprisoned. So they claimed his Fifth Amendment rights to protection from self-incrimination were violated by admitting the lawyerless confession evidence that they had gathered in the UK. Then again, he signed the waiver. He claimed it was under duress. Another thing is that a similar murder had happened in Roanoke around the time that the Hasems were murdered. They claimed that not mentioning this before trial was considered a Brady violation. Basically, it's a failure on the prosecution's part to share potentially exculpatory evidence with the defense. And they also claimed that the footprint analysis was bunk, which, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, why would they need to share the other murder if it had nothing to do? Because, (laughs) well, they're claiming that the fact that there was a similar murder means that there are possibly other suspects and it creates reasonable doubt. Okay, that's fair. So the Virginia Supreme Court denied the petition in 1988. The U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fourth Circuit also denied the petition. And then the U.S. Supreme Court never actually took up the case. So... At that point, he was still in prison. He had a clean prison record up to that point. In 2010, there was actually new evidence that came to light about this case. DNA testing showed that there was somebody else at the crime scene. This is actually what Dr. Tom McClintock helped on. They had the DNA retested and they actually compared the strands to Jens Sering's DNA. And I will let Dr. McClintock explain it because he explains it a whole lot better than I do. So... Enjoy this interview. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. Hi, Dr. McClintock. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you again for agreeing to do the interview with me. Absolutely. First question, pretty simple. What is your name and what are your qualifications in the forensic world? Uh, My name is J. Thomas McClintock. I have a BS in biology and chemistry, a master's in entomology, a PhD in microbiology, and then a postdoc, basically molecular virology. And many of those degrees really focused on DNA at the molecular level, looking at DNA synthesis or protein synthesis. I am founder and owner of DNA Diagnostics, Inc., which is a consulting firm that works with attorneys, uh, law groups, private, state, and federal agencies on cases that involve any sort of DNA technology. So it could be a criminal-related case or a civil matter. I'm also a professor and director of forensic science in the Department of Biology and Chemistry at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. 
What sparked your interest in the field? Well, DNA analysis started in the United Kingdom in 1985. And around early 1990s, DNA profiling was in the U.S. It was being utilized in the legal system. And I had a friend who was an attorney that didn't know what DNA was, couldn't spell it. (laughs) And um, he just asked my advice. And I ended up testifying in the matter. It was in the state of Maryland versus uh, Gibbons. Uh, It was a murder case. And what I realized, um, I was on the defense. The prosecutor's expert was a BS level individual in terms of academic background. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, but I found it really amazing that this individual qualified as an expert with just some of the basic courses in a biology undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking basically anyone could walk in and claim to be an expert in a specific field and the courts were approving them. It was still in the early days of DNA profiling. And there was really no regulatory agency to provide any sort of oversight. So for instance, you know, medical devices, uh, foods are regulated by FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Mm -hmm. And eventually the FBI kind of took the lead on it. And then um, other let's call them accrediting bodies or committees that now oversee a lot of these um, you know, procedures and applications. So it was really just seeing how easily someone could be wrongfully convicted, mm-hmm. as well as exonerated through DNA testing. So my passion was, let's give a shot. Let's take a look at some of these cases and see if I can contribute. And so you said that you've basically been doing this sort of thing since the 90s, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. I started DNA Diagnostics as an S-corporation back in 1991. Okay. And the first year I had three cases. Mm-hmm. And now it gets a little overwhelming at times, but um, it's it's manageable. Can you give like an estimate of how many cases you've worked on in that time? Um, absolutely. And I keep those on file on my CV. And the reason for that to qualify as an expert, one of the questions will be asked is, have you ever testified as a forensic DNA expert? So I've worked close to 500 cases oh, wow. um, since 1991. Uh, I currently am working on about 40, 45 cases, and many of those have been backlogged because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Last summer, I had one court-martial. All the other cases um, moved up into 2021, so I've had a couple cases in later part of the winter and spring, and now they're starting to really roll in. I think I have four in the month of September. Oh, geez. <laughs> scheduled out to 2022. So it's exciting that none of them are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that keeps me uh, busy and out of trouble. And I'll make <laughs> Well, that's good. Um, I guess we'll get to the reason why we're doing this interview. Um, you worked with Jens Suring's defense team. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. And how did you come to be involved with the case? I believe it was in 2017, probably early spring, um, Stephen Rosenfield, um, Yen Soaring's attorney, contacted me. He was, I guess, notified by a reporter at the Washington Post to contact me. Uh, I was someone that was fairly close. 
Um, I've been working a lot of cases. And by that time, I had been nominated as one of the top 15 DNA analysts in the country. So he contacted me and the basis of the contact was the Virginia Department of Forensic Science in Richmond, which is one of four labs in the Commonwealth of Virginia, four forensic science labs. They had in 2009 issued a report, what's called a certificate of analysis, where they had tested some samples from the crime scene, the death scene, if you will, of the Hastings. And they had done some serological work and then some DNA work. And I really focused on the DNA aspects of that report. My part was to review the data that was generated by the Department of Forensic Science or DFS. So I didn't really specifically perform any test. Uh, okay. If, if I deemed or the team deemed that it was worthy, we could have requested that through Bedford County. I'm not sure if they would be in compliance or be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. I think some of the arguments would have been, you know, the items have been in storage for so long, many people have touched them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, what would be the, the uh, significance of that? That makes sense. So what DFS did was um, DNA profile using mm -hmm. a technique that's called short tandem repeat analysis or STR. And we all have these short tandem repeats on our chromosomes. Imagine if you were looking over a train yard and let's say you had 23 trains. Mm -hmm. And I ask you, what are the differences between these trains? And you said, well, they're all different lengths. And my next question would be, well, why are they all different lengths? And you say, well, some of these trains have six box cars. Some have 11, some have 15, and so on. So now think about these boxcars as short pieces of DNA that are repeated in tandem, like boxcars in a row. Mm -hmm. And that value of boxcars, those numbers, really generate a what's called an allelic profile, a DNA profile. So for instance, at an address, where you look at specific sites on chromosomes, you could be a six and a seven. Mm -hmm. The six is from one parent and the seven's from another parent. So if you could imagine at conception, your parents give you those six pieces of DNA, six boxcars at that site, and the other parent gives you the other seven boxcars or pieces of DNA. And we have many of these sites, they're, they're called loci, singular is, is locus. And we all have the same loci, but we have different allelic responses. I mean, there's a number of alleles for each locus, but you know, when you start to look at 16 or 24 sites, those profiles are different between pretty much everyone in the world except for identical twins. Okay. So that test was started back, I believe it was in the early 1990s, and it's held up fairly nicely over the years. So it's, it's, it's very efficient. It's 99.99% accurate. Mm -hmm. Where the difficulties come in is the interpretation, especially with mixtures. Okay. And so what were the findings of your analysis? So what DFS does in their certificate of analysis, it's basically a summary 
of their findings. And what I focused on were some of the evidentiary samples that were tested. So for instance, and they have specific numbers, the samples have specific numbers. So there's a sample, a stain from the screen door, which appears to be blood. There is a sample and a stain. I believe this was near the front door. There's another stain from the threshold of the door, the entrance. There is a stain that was analyzed from the countertop. And then you have your known reference samples, which would be Ian Soren's DNA profile and mm -hmm. Elizabeth Hasten's profile. Derek Hasten's profile was kind of estimated based on a piece of evidentiary sample. Okay. So what one does is you generate the profiles for the evidentiary samples and the known reference samples, and you want to compare those to see if you can match them up or mm -hmm. exclude an individual. And so as I look across all of the loci that were tested, and I look at Jens Soaring's DNA profile, none of his alleles at any of those sites, well, I don't want to say none of the alleles, but his allelic profile, his DNA profile, was not present in any of those samples tested. Maybe to put this in context is, if you think about the Peanuts cartoon, <laughs> all the little characters, Lucy and Linus uh, and Charlie Brown, of course, mm -hmm. uh, there's one character that's called Pigpen. Oh yeah. Pigpen, when he walks, he leaves a mess. I mean, he's just filthy and we know that humans shed up to 40,000 skin cells per hour. Some have estimated like 400,000 a day. So if you think of those skin cells as dirt, I think all of us would look like pig pen. <laughs> you can see the skin cells. Yeah. So what that's saying is there is a principle, I believe it's pronounced Locard's principle, that states that every time you go into a crime scene or wherever you go, you're going to leave something and you're going to pick up something. So what that analogy means to me is if Yin Soren was present, there's a good likelihood he would have left something yeah. at the crime scene. And no one, as far as I'm aware to date, has been able to demonstrate that he was there. Well, that answers my next question. I was going to ask, in your professional opinion, what do these findings indicate about his involvement on that day? Yeah, I mean, that's that's hard to say. All I could really say based on the data that I looked at is none of the DNA profiles matched him, mm -hmm. matched Ian Soaring. Could you exclude him? Um, you could exclude him based on the DNA. Now, if other evidence was tested and his DNA showed up, then you would be able to place him at the crime scene. But to date, um, I have not been able to do that. Welcome back. <laughs> yes, welcome back. Wasn't that incredibly informative? I'm super grateful for the fact that he decided to take his time to talk with us and to let us actually interview him. I mean, it was mostly Bree. I gave one question because <laughs> yeah. my computer decided to be crackheaded-ish. I don't know. Yeah, it happens. So because of this DNA evidence, then Governor Tim Kaine was 
leaning towards actually releasing Jens and deporting him to Germany because he's a German citizen. So I mean, that's fair. Like I said, he was motivated by that new DNA testing, showing that there was somebody else at the crime scene, not him. But then the next governor who came in, Bob McDonnell, (laughs) he took office and then he put a hold on the transfer. McDonnell might have been motivated by Elizabeth Hasem writing to the Associated Press that Jens was just as guilty as she was. Up to that point, she had been silent. Like she had not given any sort of interviews or anything like that. So here's a quote from what she said. She said, quote, I am profoundly ashamed of my crime. It's a horrific crime. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like public entertainment. So I have been mostly silent. And then it said, but Hasem said she is frustrated by the efforts of Suring and his supporters over the decades claiming his innocence and muddying the waters. So essentially she was just saying that Jens is just as guilty as I am, that he was motivated by the sexual abuse that she finally admitted was actually happening in the same article. But one thing I didn't write down, but that I should probably mention is that Jens Suring, because he was talking so consistently about this case, it got the attention of a lot of important people. I don't remember if it was Charlie Sheen or Martin Sheen, but one of the Sheens, (laughs) he spoke up in defense of Jens claiming that he was innocent, all this kind of thing. So it just brought a lot of publicity. We don't really take anything Charlie Sheen says for the truth. I mean, that's valid, but it did bring a lot of popularity and attention to this trial. Amanda Knox, she has a true crime podcast, actually, and she did a, I think it was six episode series on this case as well. And she supports Jens. I was a little, I don't know, I felt like she was a little too biased in the fact that because she had a similar experience in being wrongly convicted, that she was already approaching it from that angle. So if you go to listen to it, just go into it with that in mind. She does mention it a couple times that it had an eerie similarity to her case and things like that. It's still an interesting topic. She actually had interviews with Chuck Reed in her podcast. So she had some interesting things on that podcast. So go ahead and give that a listen. Elizabeth has been denied parole 15 times. <laughs> so that's a lot um, of times to be denied parole. Yeah. Especially because if you remember, she pled guilty because Jim Updike said that he would support her bid for parole, but <laughs> clearly that didn't help. And so I mentioned in, I think it was the Stephen Epperly case, potentially it was a different episode that in this area, there's seems to be a lot of stubbornness from police officers when they don't necessarily want to relook at a case. They just want it to be closed. They don't want to have to look any further into it. This is the case that I was mentioning where there's a lot of stubbornness. I've mentioned in the last episode that Ricky Gardner was insistent no criminal profile had been done. He says that the, I think it was Tony Buchanan or Toby Buchanan or whatever had never talked to him about a car covered in blood with a bloody knife in it. And 30 years later, he still believes that Jens is guilty, while Chuck Reed actually has changed his mind and believes he's innocent. So I thought that was interesting, is the fact that they disagree on this. But at the same time, keep in mind that Chuck Reed did retire in the process of this case. So it's possible that Ricky Gardner maybe has information on the case that Chuck Reed didn't. I don't know. 
So I guess that's really the majority of the ins and outs of the case. Um, I believe in 2019, they were actually both released from prison. Jens was deported to Germany. Then Elizabeth was deported to Canada because she's a Canadian citizen. So they are both out of prison. Yeah, it's, I don't know, this case had a lot of twists and turns and I still am not entirely sure where I sit in where I believe with what happened, but... I think Jens, even if he was not involved in the actual murder, he definitely helped cover it up after the fact, helped her run to another country. And I agree. I think after listening to, to you explaining everything, I feel like they were both complicit yeah. with everything. I think maybe Jens might not have done the actual murder, but mm-hmm. he knew what was going on. He helped plan it. Yeah, especially because in those letters that they kept, like stupid people, they were referring to the murders as our little nasty and some crime that happened in Bedford, Virginia and things like that. So it's like, please stop. (laughs) (laughs) See, I was hoping you had forgotten. (laughs) I will never forget. These were a couple of things that I wrote down, some quotes that were in the documentary. I don't remember when they were said. I think it was in the middle of the trial or something along those lines, but this was a quote from Jens, quote, I have destroyed my life. I have destroyed the life of my parents. I have brought so much sorrow to so many people because I thought it was about love, but this love didn't exist. Um, What about the two people that you murdered? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then Elizabeth said, quote, my parents died because Jens and I were obsessed with each other and he was jealous of anything else in my life, unquote. I feel like after seeing her quotes, I feel like she's come to like terms that she and Jens did murder the parents. Jens is still going to like keep his innocence, but I feel like she's like, we're both guilty. I went down. He's going down. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm a little bit more inclined to believe Elizabeth. I think that I think Elizabeth was a good liar. Other people said that she was a charming liar. But at the same time, I do think that Jens isn't as innocent as he keeps trying to claim he is. Yeah. Even if you didn't do it, you knew about it. You helped cover it up. You helped her run. You're an accessory to murder. Yeah, exactly. You might not have actually been the one that stabbed them and like slit their throats, but you might as well have. (laughs) Yeah. A couple of things that I wrote down, I didn't completely write every thought that I had down, but I feel like Elizabeth might have been because they mentioned that she had borderline personality disorder. So one thing about borderline personality disorder I mentioned last episode, it's very stigmatized diagnosis, and that is because it's extreme emotional reactions to situations. But there's also this idea that people who have borderline personality disorder are often manipulative of people to try and get what they want. Mm -hmm. I just want to state for the record, that's not always the case. It may come across as that, but it's essentially just they're not as able to regulate their emotions as other people. Their emotions are just more heightened. So when they feel highs, they feel really, really high. When they feel lows, it's really, really low. Like it's catastrophic almost for them. Yeah. I actually know people in my life who have borderline personality disorder. So that's kind of where I'm coming from it as. It's people that I really care about, people who I have known for a good percentage of my life, probably at least half my life. So I would just like to state for the record that I'm not blaming her borderline personality disorder when I say this, but I think that she has some narcissistic tendencies (laughs) in that 
There were a couple of things I didn't mention throughout the episode that were mentioned in the documentary. She apparently always had a story or a skill that would one up the person that she was talking to. I've encountered people like that. And yeah. it's it's just like you can never let somebody else be looked at as better than you. <laughs> she made it seem like it was an honor to type up her writing for her. That was something I think it was like she had Jens typing up her papers or her letters or something like that. And she made it seem like it was an honor to be doing that. I don't know. That could just be Jens trying to paint her in a certain way. So yeah, take that with a grain of salt. One thing she did do that was actually from her mouth was that she called Jens a wimp on the stand. <laughs> so it was interesting to me that she kind of painted herself out to be the victim in all of this when she was most likely the perpetrator. Yeah. Like you might be. That's a trait for narcissism too though. Yeah. That bothered me because it was like, your parents are both dead. <laughs> like you're not the actual victim in this whole instance, you yeah. know? Well, also, not that it would have changed anything, but she was also an addict. So that could have heightened the borderline personality disorder traits. Yeah, that's true. Going along with the making herself a victim thing, they mentioned in the documentary that one of the Scotland Yard sergeants, Sergeant Beaver, I think I mentioned him, he actually, while he was interviewing Elizabeth, gave a couple of details about Jens's statement to them. And sometimes you see it in shows where police will fudge the truth to try and elicit a confession. And so I think that's what they were doing in this circumstance. I'm not 100% sure. But she apparently got mad when she believed that Jens had, quote, let her down while she was continuing to cover for him. And I think that's when she changed her mind on whether or not she was going to keep helping him. Because it was like, as soon as she believed that Jens had turned on her, she flipped the switch like immediately. And that is actually one of the symptoms of borderline is black and white thinking, but also just like you can love somebody one day. And then as soon as they do something that upsets you, pisses you off or anything like that, they're suddenly the devil. You know, it's like you want absolutely nothing to do with them. I do want to say that's not always the case. But that's one of the common traits that goes with borderline. Basically, when she went back to Virginia, she was claiming that she needed to face trial to secure a conviction for herself so that he wouldn't be able to get off with a second degree murder charge. So basically, she was like, I need to secure my own charge to make sure that he gets punished. She repeatedly insisted that he had a choice to do what he did. And maybe. And then also the fact that she was silent for 21 years up until Jens was about to be released. And then that's when she released that thing with the Associated Press. That's fair. There are some things where it's like, I do kind of believe Elizabeth in some instances. I don't believe that Jens is completely innocent in this situation. I think both sides of their stories have truth in there somewhere. Yeah. There's Elizabeth's side, Jens' side, and then the truth. And you just kind of kind of pick apart their testimonies. Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously they're going to say whatever makes them look better. Yeah. It's a case of lovers scorned in a sense. Yeah. I don't want to boil it down to that because that's just so not the case overall, but it was interesting to look at the case and see all of the conflicting information and see what came of that. I hope you guys enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you so much to Dr. McClintock. Yes, Dr. McClintock. For sitting down with us and to answering a few questions and to come on our podcast. If you would like to 
follow us for more of this content. You can find us on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We are on Facebook with a Facebook group. It's a private group. You do have to request to join, but we're not going to turn you away. Just search Shockingly Wicked Podcast and you'll be admitted. And then we're also on YouTube at Shockingly Wicked Podcasts. And if you guys subscribe, a hundred of you will get a URL. So please subscribe to our YouTube. Yes, please. Because that makes it easier for us to tell you how to find us. For now, you just have to search, but we should be the only ones with that title. So we will see you over there. Stay tuned for our next big case because we got some more interviews coming at you. That we're actually recording this Saturday. We will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.